This is the Witnesses of History podcast, presented by Jeff Longley. Hello and welcome to Witnesses of History for the 24th of April. And we start with Patrick Gordon Walker's report in 1945 on that date of the Nazi concentration camp at Belsen near Selly, which did not have gas chambers, but nevertheless, an estimated 37,000 prisoners died there from starvation, disease and overwork. It was, though, the first camp to be liberated by the Allies on the 15th of April, and the Commandant, Joseph Kramer, notorious for his cruelty, was hanged by the British on the 17th of November of 1945. Gordon Walker writes, I went to Belson. It was a vast area surrounded by barbed wire. The whole thing was being guarded by Hungarian guards. They'd been in the German army, but are now, immediately and without hesitation, serving us. They're saving us a large number of men for the time being. Outside the camp, which is amidst bushes, pines and heather, all fairly recently planted, were great notices in red letters, danger, typhus. We drove into what turned out to be a great training camp, a sort of Aberdeen, where we found the officers and men of the Oxfordshire Yeomanry. They began to tell us about the concentration camp. It lies south of the training area and is behind its own barbed wire. The Wehrmacht is not allowed near it. It was entirely guarded by SS men and women. This is what I discovered about the release of the camp that happened about the 15th. I got this story from Derek Sington, the political officer, and from officers and men of the Oxfordshire Yeomanry. Typhus broke out in the camp and a truce was arranged so that we could take the camp over. The Germans originally had proposed that we should bypass the camp. In the meanwhile, thousands and thousands of people would have died and been shot. We refused those terms and demanded the withdrawal of the Germans and the disarmament of the SS guards. Some dozen SS men and women were left behind under the command of High Stummführer Kramer, who had been at Auschwitz. Apparently, they had been told all sorts of fairy tales about the troops, that they could go on guarding, and that we would let them free, and so forth. We had only a handful of men so far, and the SS stayed there that night. The first night of liberty, many hundreds of people died of joy. Next day, some men of the yeomanry arrived. The people crowded round them, kissing their hands and feet, and dying from weakness. Corpses in every state of decay were lying around, piled up on top of each other in heaps. There were corpses in the compound in flocks. People were falling dead all around, people who were walking skeletons. One woman came up to a soldier who was guarding the milk store and doling the milk out to children and begged for milk for her baby. The man took the baby and saw that it had been dead for days, black in the face and shriveled up. The woman went on begging for milk, so he poured some on the dead lips. The mother then started to croon with joy and carried the baby off in triumph. She stumbled and fell dead in a few yards. I have this story and some others on record spoken by the men who saw them. On the 16th, Kramer and the SS were arrested. Kramer was taken off and kept in the icebox with some stinking fish of the officer's home. He is now going back to the rear. 
The rest, men and women, were kept under guard to save them from the inmates. The men were set to work shoveling up the corpses into lorries. About 35,000 corpses were reckoned, more actually than the living. Of the living, there were about 30,000. The SS men were driven and pushed along and made to ride on top of the load, loaded corpses and then shoved them into their great mass open graves. They were so tired that they fell exhausted amongst the corpses. Jeering crowds collected around them and they had to be kept under strong guard. Two men committed suicide in their cells. Two jumped off the lorry and tried to run away and get lost in the crowd. They were shot down. One jumped into a concrete pool of water and was riddled with bullets. The other was brought to the ground with a shot in the belly. The SS women were made to cook and carry heavy loads. One of them tried to commit suicide. The inmates said that they were more cruel and brutal than the men. They were all young in their twenties. One SS woman tried to hide disguised as a prisoner. She was denounced and arrested. The camp was so full because people had been brought here from east and west. Some people were brought from Nordhausen, a five-day journey without food. Many had marched for two or three days. There was no food at all in the camp, a few piles of roots amidst the piles of dead bodies. Some of the dead bodies were of people so hungry that though the roots were guarded by SS men, they had tried to storm them and had been shot down then and there. There was no water, nothing but these roots and some boiled stinking carrots, enough for a few hundred people. Men and women had fought for these raw, uncooked roots. Dead bodies, black and blue and bloated, and skeletons had been used as pillows by sick people. The day after we took over, seven block leaders, mostly Poles, were murdered by the inmates. Some were still beating the people. We arrested one woman who had beaten another woman with a board. She quite frankly admitted the offence. We were arresting these people. An enormous buried dump of personal jewellery and belongings was discovered in suitcases. When I went to the camp five days after its liberation, there were still bodies all around. I saw about a thousand. In one place, hundreds had been shoveled into a mass grave by bulldozers. In another, Hungarian soldiers were putting corpses into a grave that was 60 feet by 60 feet and 30 feet deep. It was almost half full. Other and similar pits were being dug. 5,000 people had died since we got to the camp. People died before my eyes, scarcely human, moaning skeletons. Many of them had gone mad. Bodies were just piled up. Many had gashed wounds and bullet marks and terrible sores. One Englishman who had lived in Ostend was picked up half dead. It was found that he had a great bullet wound in his back. He could just speak. He had no idea when he'd been shot. He must have been lying half unconscious when some SS men shot him as he was crawling about. This was quite common. I walked about the camp. Everywhere was the smell and odour of death. After a few hours you get used to it and don't notice it any more. People have typhus and dysentery. In one compound I went, I saw women standing up quite naked, washing them among themselves. Nearby were piles of corpses. Other women suffering from dysentery were def defecating in the open and then staggering back half dead to their blocks. Some were lying groaning on the ground. One had reverted to the absolute primitive. 
A great job has been done in getting water into the camp. It has been pumped in from the outside and carried by hoses all over the camp with frequent outlet points. There are taps of fresh, clean water everywhere. Carts with water move around. The Royal Army Service Corps has also done a good job in getting food in. I went into the typhus ward, packed thick with people lying in dirty rags of blankets on the floor, groaning and moaning. By the door sat an English Tommy, talking to the people and cheering them up. They couldn't understand what he said, and he was continually ladling out milk out of a cauldron. I collected together some women who could speak English and German and began to make records. An amazing thing is the number who managed to keep themselves clean and neat. All of them said that in a day or two more they would have gone under from hunger and weakness. There are three main classes in the camp. The healthy, who have managed to keep themselves decent, but nearly all of these had typhus. Then there were the sick, who were more or less cared for by their friends. Then there was the vast underworld that had lost all self-respect, crawling around in rags, living in abominable squalor, defecating in the compound, often mad or half-mad. By the other prisoners they are called the Muslimen. It is these who are still dying like flies. They can hardly walk on their legs. Thousands still of these cannot be saved, and if they were, they would be in lunatic asylums for the short remainder of their pitiful lives. There were a very large number of girls in the camp, mostly Jewesses from Auschwitz. They have to be healthy to survive. Over and over again I was told the same story. The parades at which people were picked out arbitrarily for the gas chamber and the crematorium where many were burnt alive. Only a person in perfect health survived. Life and death was a question of pure chance. Rich Jews arrived with their belongings and were able to keep some. There was soap and perfume and fountain pens and watches. All amidst the chance of sudden arbitrary death, amidst work commandos from which the people returned to this tomb, so dead beat that they were sure to be picked for the gas chamber at the next parade, amidst the most horrible death, filth and squalor that could be imagined. People at Auschwitz were saved by being moved away to work in towns like Hamburg and were then moved back to Belsen as we advanced. At Auschwitz, every woman had their hair shaven absolutely bald. I met pretty young girls whose hair was one inch long. They all had their numbers tattooed on their left arm, a mark of honour they will wear all their lives. One of the most extraordinary things was the women and men, there were only a few, who had kept themselves decent and clean. On the first day, many had on powder and lipstick. It seems that the SS stores had been located and looted and boots and clothes had been found. Hundreds of people came up to me with letters which I have taken and am sending back to London to be posted all over the world. Many have lost all their relatives. My father and mother were burned. My sister was burned. This is what you hear all the time. The British Army is doing what it can. Units are voluntarily giving up blankets. 50,000 arrived while I was there, and they're being laundered. Sweets and chocolate and rations have been voluntarily given. Then we went to the children's hut. The floors had been piled with corpses. There had been no time to move. We collected a chorus of Russian girls from 12 to 14, and Dutch boys and girls from 9 to 15. They sang songs. The Russian children were very impressive, clean and quite big children. They had been looked after magnificently amidst starvation. They sang the songs they remembered from before captivity. 
They looked happy now. The Dutch children had been in camp a long time and were very skinny and pale. We stood with our backs to the corpses, out in the open amidst the pines and the birch trees near the wire fence running round the camp. Men were hung for hours at a time, suspended by their arms, hands tied behind their backs in Belsen. Beatings in workshops were continuous and there were many deaths there. Just before I left the camp, a crematorium was discovered. A story of Auschwitz was told to me by Helen, and her last name she didn't remember. She was a Czechoslovak. When women were given the chance to go and work elsewhere in the work zones like Hamburg, mothers and children were, in fact, given the choice between their lives and their children. Children could not be taken along. Many preferred to stay with their children and face certain death. Some decided to leave their children but it got around amongst the six-year-old children that if they were left there, they would at once be gassed. There were terrible scenes between children and their mothers. One child was so angry that though the mother changed her mind and stayed and died, the child would not talk to her. That night, when I got back at about eleven o'clock, very exhausted, I saw the Jewish padre again and talked to him as he was going to bed. Suddenly he broke down completely and sobbed. The next morning I left this hellhole, this camp. As I left, I had myself deloused, and my recording truck as well. To you at home, this is one camp. There are many more. This is what you are fighting. None of this is propaganda. This is the plain and simple truth. We stay with war but move forward to John Pilger's report on the Veterans March in Washington, D.C. on the 25th of April, 1971, which followed the U.S. invasion of Cambodia the previous year, which was to destroy Viet Cong bases in, and it intensified the anti-Vietnam War de demonstrations around the world. The war didn't actually end until April 1975, when the South Vietnamese government surrendered and Saigon fell without a struggle. Pilger reports. The truth is out. Mickey Mouse is dead. The good guys are really the bad guys in disguise. The speaker is William Wyman from New York City. He's 19 and has no legs. He sits in a wheelchair on the steps of the United States Congress in the midst of a crowd of 300,000, the greatest demonstration America has ever seen. He has on green combat fatigues and the jacket is torn where he has ripped away the medals and the ribbons he has been given in exchange for his legs. And along with hundreds of other veterans of the war in Vietnam, he has hurled them on the Capitol steps and described them as shit. And now to those who form a ring of pity around him, he says, Before I lost these legs, I killed and killed. We all did. Don't grieve for me. All week, the veterans have been in Washington. Never before in this country have young soldiers marched in protest against the war they themselves have fought, and which is still going on. They have stopped Mr and Mrs America in the street and told them about the gore and what they did, which they describe as atrocities. They have marched, or tried to march, a battalion of shuffling stick figures to the Department of Defence, where they have tried to give themselves up only be to be told by a bemused one-star general, sorry, we don't take American prisoners here. Dale Granada, a former quartermaster on a destroyer, shouting through a loud hailer, describes to rush-hour shoppers how he helped to raise a Vietnamese village. 
Listen to this, friends. The whole village was burning, but the spotter planes reported people fleeing across open fields, so we switched to fragmented shells and began to chop the people up. And we began flying phosphorus shells and watching them burn. The veterans' presence in Washington today is deeply confusing to the American mood. A police sergeant on duty at the Capitol says, Hell, I'd throw in my badge before I touch these guys. A businessman who was just passing by now fussily clears a path for Bill Loivy, who has spent two years in military hospitals and will always need crutches. An old couple, he in red baseball cap and she in blue rinse, have come up from Georgia to see Washington in the spring, and now they march with a woman who lost a son over there. Even a party of enormous ladies from the Daughters of the American Revolution, an organisation that would gleefully detonate the world tomorrow and which happened to be meeting in Washington today, stand transfixed and almost crying, almost as the carnage passes them by, including Jack Saul from California wearing a grotesque mask of Richard Nixon, smiling. And when someone asks Jack, jokingly, what he himself looks like, he takes it off and reveals a face that looks as though it has just finished pouring acid on it. Peace, he says. And so from two grotesque reports of the hell of war, we move back to the 24th of April, 1752, and John Wesley writing himself about his preaching in Hull. Between five and six, the coach called and took me to Mighton Car, about half a mile from the town. A huge multitude, rich and poor, horse and foot, with several coaches, were soon gathered together, to whom I cried with a loud voice and a composed spirit, What shall it profit a man if he gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Some thousands of the people seriously attended, but many behaved as if possessed by Moloch. Clods and stones flew about on every side, but they neither touched nor disturbed me. When I had finished my discourse, I went to take coach, but the coachman had driven clear away. We were at a loss till a gentlewoman invited my wife and me to come into her coach. She brought some inconveniences on herself thereby, not only as there were nine of us in the coach, but also as the mob closely attended us, throwing in at the windows, which we did not think it prudent to shut whatever came next to hand. But a large gentlewoman who had sat in my lap screened me so that nothing came near me. And so we conclude with a very different theme from 1967 and three reports from the Daily Telegraph entitled Bye Bye Mini by Serena Sinclair, starting back on March the 9th. Britain's six Union Jills flew last night to Geneva for the International Motor Show. The select six are all in their twenties and will rivet attention anywhere in their red flannel shift dresses. Hemlines, a neat four inches above the knee, which their team leader admits caught every eye when she wore it in Belgium last week. Moving on to the 24th of April. Are Britain's young clothes getting less kooky? Could be. It's time the pendulum swung. Today's show of the Associated Fashion Designers, the group of trend-setting firms that are in fact our only fashion group now surviving in the world of ready-to-wear, should underline the point that there will be longer miniskirts. And July the 31st. As minis, symbol of the swinging 60s, fade from favour, there is, oddly enough, 
lots more leg interest in the newest clothes, only now it's nearer your ankle. Everyone will be watching everyone else to see how they've dropped their hems. You've been listening to the Witnesses of History podcast with Jeff Lumley. The music was by Eric Matthias, www.soundimage.org.